I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, or you can open up your worship guide as the scripture text is there before, before you. Uh, so as we're here this morning, uh, there's this little uh, tension um, that we're feeling. Uh, this is uh, the last Sunday of Advent. Christmas really starts tomorrow, and Christmas is not just one day. It's actually 12 days, and, but Advent, Advent is a season about waiting and anticipation. Even as we just sung uh, the song, Lie of the World, that the, the world waits for a miracle. Like, the heart longs. Like, that's what Advent is about. And we are longing and we are waiting for Christ to come. And so for the Advent season, we have been asking the question, why did Jesus come? And specifically, we're asking that question and answering that question from the book of 1 John. Because the book of 1 John gives many reasons as to why Jesus came. And today in our text of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we're going to see not just one reason, but we'll see two reasons why Jesus came. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word that this book that we love as God has given this, these words to us, that we would know him and have life in him. Let's give our careful attention to God's word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your good word that you have given to us, your word that tells us why your son Jesus Christ came. And we pray for it that your word would be sown deeply into our heart, that your spirit would use your word to teach us and to shape us to make us more like you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Netflix hit series, The Crown. Do we have any fans in here of The Crown? Good. It's a great show. It's the story of the British queen, Queen Elizabeth. And throughout this show, you feel the tension between tradition and relevance. Because how can the crown, an institution that has lasted almost a thousand years, just think about that. Here's an institution that has lasted for a thousand years. How can this institution remain relevant? Because here's Queen Elizabeth. She was born in 1926. Some, there's been some inventions since that time. I'm not talking about the iPhone. I'm talking about sliced bread. Nylon, Velcro, the Slinky, the FM radio. There's been a number of inventions since 1926. And so during her reign, perhaps even most scandalously, she saw the Beatles top the charts along with the Spice Girls. How do you stay relevant amidst such cultural change while being true to your character and to your calling? Like, I cannot imagine experiencing that tension as an individual. And so the crown really puts this out for us to consider in some dramatic 
fashion, and it is fictional, to, but it's incredible just to even consider how that would be playing out. But in the final episode, season six, not the final episode, final season, so season six, but the sixth episode, there's this conversation get at, about this very question about how do monarchs remain relevant? How can we improve our public image to the, the world? And I say our, I'm not a monarch. I'm not a king. I'm a peasant. I'm a citizen of his royal highness. True story. But there's this entire conversation about the monarchs. How can they improve their public image as they are seen as too distant, too disconnected, too remote, too isolated, too detached, and so on? And so this discussion includes how can we reform our image, and it's including, well, let's decrease the amount of pomp and circumstance. And so Tony Blair gives some recommendations of like out, removing the warden of the swans. Or, hey, well, you can fire the royal napkin folder. And so here's this, this conversation. And again, it's fictional. And there's Prince Charles at the time. I don't feel there's anything wrong with running the monarchy on more rational and democratic lines. And here's Queen Elizabeth. But monarchy is not rational or democratic or logical or fair. Haven't we all learned that by now? People do not want to come to the royal palace and get what they could have gotten at home. When they come for an investiture or a state visit, when they brush up against us, they want the magic. They want the mystery. They want the arcane, the eccentric, and the symbolic, and the transcendent. You can use a different word there. They want the heavenly. They want to feel like they've entered another world. And that is our duty as royals, to lift people up and transport them into another realm, not to bring them down to earth and remind them of what they already have. So that's the theory behind the British monarchy. But the, the reality is, in light of the curse and the fall of sin in this world, what every monarchy has done, what every institution, even American Republicans and Democrats, what we have done is that we have created and treated people, we have treated people and created groups of the haves and the have-nots. Even what Queen Elizabeth fictitiously admits, that monarchy is not fair. Throughout human history, we have seen time and time again of a baby born who will become a king, but only once have we seen a king become a baby. That throughout history, we have... Catherine the Great, Alexander the Great, but we have Jesus of Nazareth. It's not Jesus the Great. That here is Jesus. He is a king unlike every other king. He is a king who is unlike every queen. That he is the one who does not. He, he is actually the king who brings heaven down to us. And also in, do, in so doing, he brings us up to, to heaven. And so here we have two reasons why Jesus came. And it's in 1 John 4, 9. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so throughout this Advent series, we've been focusing on this very specific Greek word. It's the word appear. Here in 1 John 4, 9, that Greek word that we've seen translated as, as appear is translated as manifest in the ESV. But in the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, 
This is how it's translated. God's love appeared among us this way. God sent his one and only son so that we might live through him. And so here we see the two reasons why Jesus came. The two reasons why Jesus came is so that we would live through him and because he loved us. The reason why Jesus came is that we would have life through him and that he loved us. And let's briefly consider these two reasons. Jesus came so that we would live through him. If you know the Gospel of John, this should feel very familiar to you. That John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. This language that Jesus Christ came so that we would have life is found all throughout the Gospels. But it is an error to simply think that the life that Jesus brings us will only start when we die. It's a mistake for us to consider that our, it's a mistake for us to think that our life will only begin with Jesus when we die. Because Jesus actually tells us quite differently. Jesus tells us that he came so that we would have life and have it abundantly. That's John 10, 10. So Eugene Peterson put it this way, that Jesus came so that we would have real and eternal life, more and better than they have only dreamed of. So the question for us to briefly consider is, what does real life look like? What does it look like for you to be really living? Or when you think about this, this concept of really living, what ideas and concepts come to your mind? If I know my own heart, and I talk about my own heart, this is how I'm thinking about what real life looks like. That we think that the person who has more is really living. And this is simply mistaking quantity for quality. But we think that it would be really, that we would be really living if things were easy and convenient. That we would not be suffering or having hardship in our life. We think that having the financial means brings contentment, convenience, applause, and friendship. But Jim Carrey, not just the Grinch, he's also a philosopher, and he says this, I wish everyone would be rich as successful as I am, just to see that it's not all cracked up to be. So what does life look like? What does the real life that Jesus offers us and invites us to have look like? And God, the reality is, even that invitation of John 10, 10, that I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly, it is not only a promise, it is an invitation because God wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to thrive and to flourish and to have this type of life. It is only possible through Jesus Christ. It is only possible through Jesus Christ. It's clear here in our text before us, but even later on in chapter 5, verse 11, you read this, that he gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And so if there's any doubt about this, it is clearly answered within Scripture that the life of thriving, the abundance that is promised to us, it is only possible through Jesus Christ. And it is marked, and it is different It is different and is marked by love, specifically the love of God. And think about that for a moment. To have this type of abundance, 
to have life and live it to the fullest or to thrive and flourish, it is to know and to experience the love of God. The life that Jesus brings you is that you are known by God, that you are loved by him, that you are adopted into his family, that you are given a new purpose, you're given a new work in this world. And so Jesus, we considered this last week, but Jesus breaks our shackles to the bondage of sin and frees us from our idolatry so that we are here today in this moment and we can be fr- we are free of our idolatry and so we can live differently because of what Christ has done for us. Another TV personality, Stephen Colbert, also a philosopher in this instance. He's a Christian, he grasped this. He says he said once in an inter- interview that he is now able to be thankful for the very things in his life that he wished he once wished never happened. That he is now thankful for the very things that he once wished never happened. See, this is what Jesus does within our life. That there, and I appreciate the honesty that Colbert has because there's things in every single one of our lives that we look at and we're like, I wish that never happened. That was har- harmful. That was hurtful. I wish I never did that. But he's able to look at his life differently because of what he sees God doing in his life. See, when you know Jesus, what Jesus does is that he brings contentment. He brings courage. He brings you the ability to persevere, to endure, to have resilience in the face of hardship and sin and suffering in this world. And to have that resilience marked by joy. And it has something to do with eternity and the eternal life that Jesus brings to us. Because there will be a day when all our sadness will be wiped away. It's a beautiful thing to to dream about. A day is coming when every ounce of our sadness will be wiped away. But the wonderful reality is that our life with Jesus is not waiting to begin. We're actually just waiting for Jesus Christ to come again when we will see the presence of sin fully eradicated and removed from our life. But our life with Jesus begins the very moments that we put our trust in him. That is the moment our life with Jesus begins. And so you are enabled and empowered by the Spirit to live differently today because of what Christ has already done for you in the past. So one way that God's love actually reshapes our life today, as we see in this passage, is actually in our relationships. We see this love that we see this worked out for us because John is writing to Christians, and he mentions it twice here. He refers to Christians twice here by using a very particular title. He uses this all throughout his letters. And you see this in verse 7, beloved. Beloved, verse 11, we didn't read it, but he says, beloved again. Now, I only use this language of beloved when I'm talking about my beloved bride. I'm only using this language when I'm talking about my beloved boys. But what we see John doing is that he's talking about the church this way. If you look to the person to the left and right of you or to the other side of the room from you, he's 
That's how John is referring to the people in this room and elsewhere across the globe. Because what Jesus does is that he takes people who are enemies of his and makes them a part of his family. But he actually does more than that. Jesus takes people who were enemies with each other and makes them a family together. He takes people who are trying to impress one another to, and who are showing favoritism to one another and makes them a, a family That is what God does, that his love shapes our relationships, and so we are living life differently. And that's just one example that John gives us of how our life is different because of Jesus Christ. And so let's be honest here. We all struggle in believing this idea that Jesus Christ comes to give us an abundant life. We all struggle with this. But what can you do today to help you grow? in believing this? Well, the answer is both simpler and harder than you may think. And it's prayer. But it's more than just prayer. It's actually think about the content of prayer, the words that you are praying. Because God wants you to actually pray the promises that he makes to you. God, this promise of that Jesus says to us in John 10.10, that I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly, that God gave his son so that you would have life through him. These are promises and invitations. And God wants you to bring them back to him and say, God, you have made this promise that I would have life and have it abundantly. Why am I not experiencing that? Then as soon as I ask that question, I need to go on and make some confession because I'm believing certain things. I need to let God reshape my expectations and priorities here. And so as it will involve some confession, the point is take the promises that God makes to you, take them to God and and really argue it out with him and see what God will do in your life. Because one thing that God will do in your life, when you do that, he will change your heart and you, my friends, will become more and more like Jesus Christ. Because Christ's life will be seen in you because you have life in Christ because he has defeated sin and death in, for you. And so as you think about this question, why does Jesus come? He brings He comes to bring you life so that you would have it abundantly and to have it to the fullest for one very powerful reason. And this brings us to our other reason why Jesus came. Because he loves you. Jesus came because he loved you. And this is pure grace. It's undeserved. It's unearned. It's unmerited. And we have done nothing whatsoever to deserve God's love. In fact, We've done the opposite. We have actually done the opposite, that we have done everything to reject God's love and to deserve the consequences for our sins, to be punished for our sins and a rebellion against him. So when we understand this, this actually should heighten a sense of awe and wonder of God's love that he has for us. Because we were once dead in our sin, and yet we are now alive in Christ. That we were once sons and daughters of disobedience, children of wrath, and yet now we're children of God. Orphaned by sin, and yet adopted by God. Alienated by sin, and yet reconciled to God the Father. That we are accused of the devil, and yet we are now advocated and defended and interceded for by Christ. That we were once under the curse, and yet now every spiritual blessing is ours. 
that now every promise that God has made to you is yours and it is fulfilled and given to you in Christ. What in the world have we done to deserve this? What in the world have we done to deserve this? And this, my friends, is that grace is a scandal. It's hard to believe. And I know my own heart, and I struggle to believe this. That I can easily think that God owes me something. That what if I work hard enough? I go to worship, give to the church, volunteer, move across the state to plant a church. Then God owes me. But that, my friends, is moralism. It's religiosity. And religiosity says that our own obedience, it tricks us into thinking this, that our own obedience is the basis for God's love and forgiveness. But the truth is we are faithless and disobedient. God does not pursue us because of anything that we do. And he pursues us because he loves us. Ephesians 2 this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, a result of your own works so that no one would boast. Now, friends, we have nothing to boast about. We have no reason to brag to God, to have some swagger. We actually have every reason to humble ourselves. And in this humility, we find incredible love and grace. And so here's a poem by Richard Beck that gets at what I'm describing. I arrived to find myself already loved, a forgiveness preceding, exceeding my first crime and my last, a prior mercy, a predestined grace, anticipating my shame, a welcome offered, a healing before the pain. I had imagined it to be my task, to close the distance between us, to cross the chasm, scale the heights, my fault dictating my duty, though futile and impossible. But I looked up, hearing the angels sing, to find you already there. See, friends, this is why Jesus came. And it's great news that love has come to you, that Jesus came so that we would know God's love and experience God's love and to have life to the fullest. And do we deserve it? When we understand that answer, when you understand that the answer is no, then amazement fills your heart. Joy fills your heart. Wonder. And that in your faithlessness, Jesus befriends you. That no, you no longer have to hide or are led to hide your, due to your sin and guilt, but you're now actually secure in Jesus' love, and you are living openly before God and others because God's love comes to you, that God's love comes down to you and transforms you from the inside out, that Jesus came because he loves you. And I'll end with this. There's this lovely hymn, uh, Good Christian Friends. I encourage you to check out uh, Poor Bishop's Hooper's rendition of it. It's slow, it's contemplative, it makes you think about the words a bit more deeply. Good Christian friends rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye hear of endless bliss. Jesus Christ was born for this. He has opened heaven's door and we are blessed forevermore. Christ was born.
for this. Let's worship. Let me pray and let's continue to worship our God. Father God, we thank you for the, these incredible reasons why your son has come. That your son has come so that we would know your love. Your son has come so that we would have life in you and to have it to the fullest. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace and ways, the grace, the insight to see the ways that we deceive ourselves and live differently. That you would help us to take hold of the promises that you have made to us, to cling to them and hold them tightly and to believe them. And give us hearts of prayer so that when we don't, that we would take them before you and argue them out, that your Holy Spirit would remind us of these promises, that you would draw us more deeply to you, and that we would see your Son's Christ's life seen in our lives. We thank you for the wonderful gift that you have given us, that your Son was born for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.